0: Well, this morning we are going to read together Colossians chapter 1 and in verses 15 and 20. And uh, the words will be on the screen. And I want us to read this together. This, this passage that we're going to be looking at was likely one of the earliest hymns that was sung by the church. So as we've been singing, this was probably a hymn sung in the early, early church. The Christ hymn, as it's often been called. So Paul is seems to be pulling an element from the corporate gathering in, as he's writing to this church in Colossae and, and he's, he's pulling this out to emphasize Jesus' absolute supremacy and his all-sufficiency and which is what we're going to be talking about today as we look in this text and so even if the this text didn't start as a song uh, of worship in the church it should certainly provoke worship in the church um, in, in all ages and so we want to read it together we're not going to sing it, don't worry uh, but we're going to read this passage together in unison, and so the words will be on the screen, and let's read it together. With you, with now, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing uh, (coughs) through our study of what is essentially the core of Christianity. And we're looking at this 600 or so year old uh, creed, the Apostles' Creed, to give us some framework for this study, something uh, that we'll be in for the next uh, probably nine weeks or so. And again, the Apostles' Creed—it's giving us sort of the hard edges of Christianity. It's this shorthand summary of essential core uh, teachings of Christianity. What we as Christians believe—this is what creed means. It's a Latin word, credo, I believe. So this is telling us what we believe. It doesn't tell us everything that we believe, but but it tells us what is certainly essential. So as we said earlier, all Christians believe more than is contained. In this creed, but none believe less. And so, remember the the Bible is primary. This is the this is the authoritative source uh, of, of truth. But the creed is this very reliable. We've been talking about it like a zoomed out map, and it helps orient us to the to the terrain of the Scripture and what the Scripture teaches about. Uh, about Christ, about God the Father, about God the Son, about the Holy Spirit. And so the, the core of what Christianity is. And So today we come to the second line of the creed, which is also the second section in the Apostles' Creed. And what stands out as we're reciting this creed together each week as we're in this series, I think one of the things that stands out is how much real estate within this creed is devoted to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so he is, he is undeniably the star of the Apostles' Creed. And so there are 110 words in our English version that we've been reciting together each week. And 88 of those words are directly confessing what we believe about the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Of those 88 words speaking directly of, of God, 12 of those are used in reference to God the Father, 6 uh, to the Holy Spirit, and the other 70 refer directly to Jesus Christ, His person, His person, his work, and so you can see that emphasis. And I would argue that the remaining 22 words of the Apostles' Creed are are confessing what was accomplished by Christ: forgiveness of sins, the Church, uh, this resurrection hope, eternal life. I mean, these are these are spilling out what of what Jesus has done, and uh, because of who He is. And so, we desperately need, brothers and sisters, the clarity of this creed when it comes to. Uh, the person and work of jesus christ because there is a lot of confusion that abounds in the church today and and outside the church obviously in our in our day there was a there was a study in 2018 that uh, ligonair ministries and lifeway uh, publishing they partnered together the southern baptist and the presbyterians worked together it's it's amazing it was glorious no but they 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 worked together, and, and, the, and the title of this study was The State of Theology, What's Our Theological Temperature? And so it's this large, large data set of, uh, of survey where they're, they're uh, making statements and getting people to restru- respond on their level of agreement or disagreement with statements that were made. Just, so just to kind of get a sense of the theological acumen of evangelicals in the United States, in particular, in our day. And compare that to... Uh, a few years prior when they had done this study And compare that to uh, those outside of the evangelical church And so just to give you some sense of how they define evangelicals So they would define them as those professing Christians Who strongly agreed with the following four statements I'm quoting them So these are the four statements If you agree with these that they're, they're lumping you together as an evangelical So the first aim The Bible is the highest authority for what I believe Great Second, it is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Third statement, that is what makes an evangelical. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. And then fourth, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's gift of eternal salvation. Those are great. And so that's, I thought that was helpful. kind of Who are these evangelicals we're talking about? But listen to how confused many evangelicals are who would agree with those four statements as you begin to get a little deeper on, on certain areas. Let me just give you two examples, and one is directly related to what we're looking at today. But one example. This is the statement. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 37% of evangelicals, those who agreed to those first four statements, strongly agreed with that statement. Another 14% somewhat agreed. 7% were unsure. So less than half of professing evangelicals that were surveyed here uh, disagreed in any way with that statement. That's that's troubling. But listen to this. Here's a statement. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 73% of evangelicals strongly agreed with that statement another five percent somewhat agreed only 14 percent strongly disagreed with it now in an earlier question there's this lengthy survey with many statements and there's a lot of data there to kind of wade through but in an earlier question respondents overwhelmingly agreed with the biblical statement on the trinity and yet clearly there is still this confusion about who christ really is since so many agree with what is essentially uh, the, what the Jehovah's Witnesses would say about the person of Jesus Christ. And so I say all that to get to, I said, well, kind of sprinkling some reasons why I think it's good for us to study creeds like this and, and uh, kind of defend myself in preaching a series like this. But I bring another, another reason it's helpful for us to study the Apostles' Creed and other historic creeds of the church. Is is because it helps us to refute error. This is one of the most fundamental reasons why creeds ever began in the first place, and we'll talk about one of those creeds a little bit later in the message, the Nicene Creed. But but it, it's to help us to to see error and to respond to it by upholding the standard of orthodoxy. This this large large scale map. Uh, orients us to the terrain of the bible and what the bible teaches is about the christian faith but by upholding the standard of orthodoxy of truth of what christians believe we're also drawing clear lines of distinction with those things that we do not believe with unorthodox teaching and nowhere is this more important than when it comes to talking about jesus christ is it and we are christians we are, I'm a Christian pastor, I'm going to be talking about Jesus Christ. What, what is it that we're professing to believe when we say the name of Jesus Christ? Clearly there's a lot of confusion, and, 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 and we'll talk about why that may be. Listen to this quote from Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer. He says, if anyone stands firm and right on this point, that Jesus Christ is true God and true man who died and rose again for us, all the other articles of the Christian faith will fall in place for him and firmly sustain him. On the other hand, I have noted that all errors, heresies, idolatries, offenses, abuses, and ungodliness in the church have originally arisen because this article or part of the Christian faith concerning Jesus Christ has been despised or lost. Clearly and rightly considered, all heresies militate against the precious article of Jesus Christ. I say that to just show you the importance of being clear on who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And this is where we're going to spend the next, uh, this week and and five weeks that follow. Half of the 12 weeks that will be in the Apostles' Creed will be devoted to Jesus Christ. And so the Apostles' Creed, again, backing up, this is one of the reasons we're studying it. It gives us these these doctrinal guardrails to keep us from falling off a, a heretical cliff, as it were, as we're going along. And, and so if evangelicals are well-versed in the Apostles Creed and in other historical creeds of the church, there, there's going to be this gag reflex when we hear statements like that. We will vehemently disagree when we hear a statement like, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. That's not right, because we know this to be true. But as it is, 78% of evangelicals would agree with a statement like and I don't think it's because 78% of evangelicals have studied this out and poured over the scriptures and, 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 and come to this conclusion after diligent thought and study. I think it's simply because the theological temperature in the U.S. church within evangelicalism is so low. And there's such a lack of discernment. And that's not, that's not a... If you're here and, and that statement, it didn't, it didn't raise alarms for you, That's okay. But I just think, let's correct that. And let's see what the Scriptures truly do say. And and, and, and this, again, is, is I would say is a symptom of, of evangelicalism sort of slide from a more communal, creedal faith into a more personal, experiential faith that we see today. So today, I believe, which is all we're focusing on, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. We're just going to just... Camp out on that. And so this is just the first of several lines, again, making these, these uh, explicit claims concerning the person and work of Christ. And right out of the gate, we have this sweeping and profound statement. This is a big one. And, and there, there, is no, there is no earlier, uh, no more powerful, no simpler um, confession that Christians have made since, since Jesus came to this earth. than this confession, Jesus Christ is Lord. I mean, that is the that is base. That is, that is basic. When the early church confessed this, and and they all did, every believer would confess that at their baptism. But when they confessed that, this was two things. It was this great profession of faith, and it was this tremendous act of rebellion. You, 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 this is what I mean. It, it was a, it was obviously it's this it's this faith that I'm resting my faith on Christ who is Lord. And I'm rejecting all of the popular narratives of my day that say otherwise. And so in, 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 for those first Christians, it was this courageous rejection that Caesar, uh, of Caesar as Lord, which is what they were told to profess. And they're saying, we don't believe the storyline that our culture is telling us. We, Our trust is in Jesus Christ, who is Lord. He is our Lord. That was the profession. And for, for us today, it's still this glorious profession of faith. And it's still this, this act of rebellion when we say that. It's, a, it's an act of rebellion against the popular narratives of our own day. The, we reject the narrative of materialism that says that, that, that the more stuff is going to satisfy my soul. We say no. No. Instead, Jesus Christ alone is Lord. We, we reject the narrative that our greatest needs are going to be met by people, by powerful people, by politicians, by celebrities, and we say instead, no, Jesus Christ is Lord. We reject the narrative of pragmatism that evaluates everything by, by how I am affected and what I get out of it, including how we evaluate the church. And We say, no, Christ is Lord. It's, it's, it's this radical statement. Um... And, and we want to see it through through what how, how the Scriptures inform us here. So we're going to go now from the map, the Apostles' Creed, to the terrain, and we're going to look at Colossians 1 here. One of many, 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 many passages we could look and see the supremacy of Jesus Christ, that He is God's only Son, our Lord. We're going to focus our attention here. And so the context of Colossians, I know we're, each week we're dropping into these passages that we've not been studying. But... While Paul is under house arrest in Rome, uh, he receives news about the church in Colossae. And so Epaphras reports to Paul that he reports about their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints. And Paul gives thanks for those things and prays for them. But there's also some disturbing news that is reported to Paul. There are some teachers who are promoting very serious and dangerous error concerning the person of Christ. They're preaching that Christ was prominent, but not preeminent, as Paul will say. They claim that Jesus was one of... of what seems to be their, their, their claim was that Jesus was one of many emanations, angelic emanations of God. And so in that process, they, they ultimately deny the full deity and the, and the true humanity of Jesus Christ. And so this error, it opened all kinds of... Uh, Doors to, to all kinds of confusion about the gospel about the church about the Christian life and, and cause some issues within that church as false teaching always does now listen none of these false teachings were presented as rivals to Christ it wasn't like they came and directly challenged Jesus no, no it's not Jesus it's this they were presented alongside of Christ as add-ons to Christ that, that as if Christ is really great, but He's not enough. He's not sufficient. He's, he's the greatest cre- creation, but he's not, he's not sufficient. He's not everything. And so they said essentially, you started well with Christ, but we can take you deeper in the faith. We can, we can take you deeper, deeper knowledge, deeper experience of God by following our teachings and following the rituals that we're prescribing. So this is what was happening there. And Paul hears this report, and he's moved to write to them, to uphold again the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. And so after his introduction in verses 1 to 14, where he prays for them and gives thanks for them and greets them, he, the, the body of the letter now begins in verse 15, where we're picking it up. And this text is one of the most important statements about Christ in all the New Testament. It's huge. This is like... Somebody, I heard somebody's call. This is like nosebleed theology. You're in such lofty, a lofty place beholding Christ here that, that it, 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 it's just, it's so high. And one of the things, before we get into the text, just as we've read it uh, this morning already, in, in, in verses 15-20, there's a couple of phrases that are repeated over and over in, this, in these few verses. One of those expressions is, He is. He is. He is the image of the invisible God. He is before all things. He is the head of, his, of the body. He's talking about Christ. And so Paul's stressing, it's absolutely vital that we understand who Christ is. This will be, this will, remembering who Christ is, is one of the greatest protections against Christ plus blank teachings. It's just, it's, we're saying, no, He is supreme, He is all sufficient. And the other phrase that's repeated over and over, and you had to have seen this, Is that little word, all, or all things. He's the firstborn of all creation, verse 15. Verse 16, he's, by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We've sang this, that in everything he might be preeminent. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. And so all, it's it's totality. Everything is under his rule and authority. It's his supremacy. And in Christ, we have everything we need That's His sufficiency. And so, let's, let's dive in. Let's walk through these, these verses uh, briefly this morning. And uh, the first thing that we're going to see, just the beginning of verse 15, I want us to see His deity. We're going to see His deity, His supremacy, His sufficiency. His deity. Jesus is totally or fully God. Uh, that is clear in this passage. We can't waffle on this. Excuse me. The creed is clear when it says that he is God's Son, His only Son. This is saying He is God. He is Lord. So in relation to God, Colossians one fifteen, Christ is the image of the invisible God. So he makes the unseen God visible. He he manifests the invisible God to us. That's That's what he's saying when he's using this word image. Notice, he didn't become this image. He simply is the image. He is the image of God. Meaning this isn't primarily about his incarnation. No, I don't say that's unrelated, but this is who he is in his eternal essence. He is the image of God. He is the eternal word, the expression, the manifestation of God. God. This is about the very nature of God which Christ has, already, has always possessed. That's what this is saying. Of course, we, we hear words like image of God and we've been studying through Genesis over the, since starting in January. And we know that we are made in God's image. We are image bearers of God. Genesis 1, and 27. So how is this statement affirming... How is it affirming Christ's deity with the Father... I mean, we're image bearers, and we're not God. So, how is this upholding the fact that Jesus is God? Well, we are said to be made in the image of God. Again, Christ, however, is the image of God. He is. Yes, we bear likeness to God. We are made by God as rational beings. We have intellect. We have emotions. We have we have volition. These are ways in which we have likeness, resemblance to God. We are finite image bearers. So we we bear His image in this limited sense as as creatures. And that's something unique to humans compared to all other creatures that God has made. But Christ is this uncreated, eternal, infinite image of God in an absolute sense. We don't bear God's likeness in all those incommunicable attributes of, of omniscience and omnipotence and and uh, omnipresence and, and on and on and on. But Christ does. Anything you could say of God, you could say of Jesus. He is, he is this infinite image of God. John 1.1 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So to call Christ the image of God is to equate Him with God. At the Last Supper, in John 14, or John 4, excuse me, Philip, uh, John, excuse me, John 14, jo, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. John 14, 19, Jesus said, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is affirming. He is god he is the image he's the manifestation of god you've seen him you've seen the father that's not eliminating any distinction between within the godhead of father son and spirit but he's saying they're one in essence and always have been i mean something brooke and my kids will say to me at times after i do or say something usually after i make some sarcastic comment they'll say okay chuck now if you don't know me chuck is my dad and my, my, all, all of his grandkids call him Chuck. There's a long story there. And they don't call him Grandpa or anything like that. But they're saying that what I'm doing or saying, again, usually some sarcastic comment, it reminds them of my father. Um, and so, but, but you could never say that whoever sees me has seen my father. You couldn't say That's not a true statement. I can't claim that. We have, we have similarities. We may say some of the same things at times. We may do some of the same things. We may have physical uh, appearances that are similar. But I am not a perfect image manifestation of my dad. We are not of the same essence. But Jesus is claiming far more than a resemblance to his father. You know, say oh, we have some similarities. We have some of the same ticks. We... There's, there's something about us that's very similar. That's not it. He's declaring himself to be God. Fully, totally God. And yes, we'll see next week, truly man. And we'll talk about the incarnation next week. But Hebrews 1.3, there's so many passages we could look at. But Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of his glory. The exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And so this is, this, is such, uh, this is not a point we can uh, belabor in. This is, this is not pedantic. This is critical, brothers and sisters. Our salvation depends upon this truth. The deity of Jesus Christ. It's been famously said, Bishop Mool, wrote in a foreword to another book, he said, a Savior, not quite God, is a bridge broken at the farther end. So this is, this is essential. Essential truth second thing that's very clear in this passage is the supremacy of jesus the supremacy of jesus and so so first thing with his deity uh jesus is totally god so the second statement as god jesus totally reigns over all things Uh, sort of redundant to say that but but his supremacy it's unlimited it's unrivaled this is that all 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 we see We see it in several powerful statements here, though, in Colossians 1. Look at verse 15 again. Is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, at first, we read that and we think, well, it sounds like he's actually part of God's creation. Maybe that statement that 78% of evangelicals agreed to is actually true. Um, It's like God created a whole bunch of stuff, uh, but the very first thing he created was Jesus Christ that what he's saying by he's the firstborn of creation of all creation so Jesus is the first and greatest being ever made that was that statement we took issue with earlier that's not at all what's being said here it's not and I'm not trying to stretch the language to say this is the plain meaning of the text this isn't saying Jesus is part of creation this is saying he's over creation firstborn in it's common normal biblical sense it speaks of rank, honor, superiority. It can speak of birth order at some times, but but, but it, 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 that's not the primary sense. An Old Testament example of this, you, the story of Jacob and Israel. Uh, Jacob, who is Israel. He was the younger of Isaac's two sons. And, and And yet he's elevated by God to this higher position than his older brother. So... Uh, it says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Even not not in birth order, but in terms of priority, in terms of authority, rank, honor. This term came to be used as a description of the Messiah. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth, Psalm 89, 27, just showing his sovereignty over all creation. And so this, this meaning that this is what's implied with this saying that he's the firstborn of all creation, it becomes crystal clear if we just keep reading in the context look at verse 16 for that little word for so whatever he's about to say is is supporting or explaining what precedes that's what that little particle is is telling us so christ is the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created so Paul's trying to tell us that Christ is actually part of creation. He's the first and greatest being created by God. He, he would not back that up by saying that Christ created everything. And all things came into being by Him and through Him and for Him. Give just a little side note, if you're ever talking with Jehovah's Witnesses that come knocking on your door, riding down the street, and, and they open, a, this is one of their go-to passages, and, but in, in their New World Translation... Of this passage. They insert the word other. Between every time that you see all things. They, they, they insert other in between there. So it's all other things. All other things. That's completely foreign. There's no textual support. For that addition. But they're trying. They understand that this text. Is crucial. And it's showing the deity of Jesus. And there's an attempt to kind of. Gloss over that. And say Jesus was the first. Created being. And everything else. He created. All other things. But that's not what the text is saying. That's not it at all. There was never a time when Jesus did not exist. He was not made. There was never a time when God said, you know, let us or let me make Jesus. No. There there was a time when you and I didn't exist. There was a time when Adam and Eve didn't exist. There was a time when this earth, when the whole universe did not exist. But there was never a time when God's son, God's only son, our Lord, did not exist. The Nicene Creed, which is another very early Christian creed, it makes this even clearer than the Apostles' Creed. There was a big controversy going on at that time in the 4th century, the Arian controversy, and there was this teacher Arius who was teaching that Jesus was uh, a a created, great created being, the first created being, much like the Jehovah's Witnesses teach today, and and that, that God, the Father was the only supreme being and and the Son was his first creation. Above create all other creation, but still a creature. And so there was this big council called, Constantine called believers together and theologians and pastors together, and they, they conferred and and out of that came what's called the Nicene Creed. And this is you can see they're expanding upon the Apostles' Creed to make this even clearer, what the scriptures teach. This is how they word it. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, listen to this, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through Him all things were made. Now there's, there's a lot there, and there's a lot that we talking about, eternal, eternally begotten, we can't go there today, um, but why does all this matter? Why, why labor this for him? Do any of these distinctions really make a difference? Trust me, they matter. They do. Because if Jesus is just another part of the creation, that, that, of God's creation that he made, we better not worship him. We talked about idolatry a lot last week, and idol, idolatry, it's when we take something that God made, and we, and we treat it like it's God. We try and tap real meaning in life from it. We, 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 we look to it for our hope and happiness, our, our safety, our security, our significance. We, we trust it. We depend upon it. We cling to it. We order our lives by it. And the results of idolatry are always disastrous. As we said, our idols always eat us alive. And so if Jesus is just another part of creation, even the greatest part of creation, we'd better not worship him. We, we, we can't we'd be idolaters it, we, we, we'd, we'd better stop singing songs to jesus christ like we've been doing this morning Oh, hail the power of jesus name we'd better stop giving him praise and honor that are due to god alone we'd better stop trusting him hoping in him resting in him but if he's god and he is If He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, then we'd better worship away. We'd better trust our lives to Him. I mean, we, we can never get too carried away in worship and trust of Jesus if He, in fact, is the firstborn of all creation. If He is Lord, if He is the image of the invisible God, He's infinite. You cannot trust Him too much. You cannot... Think too highly of Him. You can't praise Him too much if this is who He is. You you cannot love Him too much. You cannot rely upon Him too much. You cannot listen to Him too much. You can't obey Him too much. You you can put all your eggs in that basket. We we, we just back up the truck. It's all in with Jesus. So so this is is some of the implications. Alright, let's keep going. What else does Paul say about Jesus' unrivaled supremacy. Verse 16, <coughs> For by or in Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. So there's a lot said there, and I would just have to summarize, but all, all creative plans and powers of God reside in Christ. We're saying they're created by Him or in Him. And He's also the agent of creation through Him. So we could say Jesus is both the architect and the builder of creation. John 1.3, all things came into being through Him and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And not only that, Christ is the goal of creation. All things have been created for Him. It's It's all for His glory. So, so you, you can see how Jesus, says, as the firstborn of, of all creation, he's supreme over creation. Not part of it. I mean, how many of you are firstborn kids? Raise your hand. Don't be embarrassed. I don't like firstborn. No, just just kidding. Uh, um, I was not. But I have news for you. Your younger siblings, if you had any, if you had a younger brother, sister, multiple, they were not created through you or by you. You had nothing to do with it. Some of you were probably still in diapers when they were conceived. Uh, No involvement, no idea what's going on. And your little brother, sister, wasn't created through you, and and they weren't created for you. Your parents didn't have another child because you were lonely or something like that. I don't think that's it, or wasn't for your glory. But but listen to what what verse 16 is saying. And this is, again, pointing back to the, the profound statement. Jesus is firstborn of all creation. Jesus, as the firstborn of all creation, is, is worthy of unique honor, since all things have been created by Him, through Him, and for Him. And there's even more. Verse seventeen, we see that Jesus is He's before all things. That clearly places Himself places Him outside of the realm of created beings. He He's preexistent to creation, and He's the sustainer of all things. In Him. All things hold together. He's the divine glue that holds everything together. The creation which had its beginning in Christ's creative work is also it continuous to exist because of Him. That's what He's saying. So if Jesus stops holding the molecules of your life together right now, you will die. If He, if he stops holding photons and electromagnetic radiation together, light will just cease to exist. If if he stops sustaining all things, the universe will just not be. That's what he, this, is how, this is not impersonal forces that hold all things together. It's Christ. It's Christ who holds everything together. He is supreme over all. He, he totally reigns over everything. He's greater than everything. He created everything. He sustains everything. He's before everything. And there are no exceptions. Verse 16, you see... There's this list that's rattled off. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, and you could go on and on and on. And then he, finally, all things. All things. This is what it means to be the Lord. Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. He has power, authority over everything, total supremacy. And the Colossians, they had been infected with this false teaching, this virus, where, where they thought that there were these competing powers with Christ because of, he was one of these emanations, angelic emanations of God, that there were other spirit beings that were sort of other forces out there. They trusted in Christ, but there were other evil spirits and forces that were in competition with Jesus. This is what they were beginning to Think and buy into it, they so they felt they had to placate those other forces through rituals and teachings and things like that so so we can look at that as, and say well that's 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 idiotic listen that that infection is still present in the church today now it, it may not be that it shows up in you know chants and burning incense when you walk into a room or or uh burial rituals or something like that, but we can live in fear. Of unseen, uncontrollable forces that seem to have great power in the world and in our lives. It, it, uh, we see this in ourselves. If we're honest, we we ha- we feel like we have to do things a certain way. We 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 have to make just the right decisions. We have to get just the right information. We we have to avoid anything that may disturb. This balance, And so we can, get, we can get very stressed out, we might say, over forces that are outside of our control. And we're trying to hold all things together. We're trying to deal with that. And so we can become afraid when we fail to do so. We can get angry with other people when others disrupt that. But listen, if we really believe that Jesus Christ is God's only Son, our Lord we don't have to hold all things together. Jesus holds all things together, brothers and sisters. And we can rest in Him. There's no force. There's no spirit. There's no molecule that's outside of His control. He is the Lord of all. Things you can see, things you can't see, things you know about, things that you don't have any clue about. We can fear. We can We can fear as if our lives are kind of being pushed around like these he's unnamed outside invisible forces but that's not truth it's christ he is the one who holds all things together i was thinking as as uh most of you saw the newsletter we'll talk more about this in a moment uh mike's gonna make an announcement about paul and emily are gonna be coming back here and it's a change in their plans it's a change in our plans as a church in terms of how we see it. but we don't we can't see these kinds of transitions as disappointments or or problems it's a change of plans things didn't go the way we expected so it seems like things are kind of out of control because we don't feel in control but Jesus is holding all things together he is lord of all he's totally reigning over all things including where we live and what we're doing and he isn't just and he isn't just ruling over creation he's ruling over his new creation the church verse 18 Let's move quick. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the living head of this living body. He's not the CEO of an organization. He's the head of a living organism, the church of Jesus Christ. And, the, and our Lord has a special, intimate relationship with his people. And he goes on. He is the, he's the beginning. It means he's the source or origin. Church isn't didn't exist because Christ was teaching a lot and he gathered some people that were interested and kind of following his instruction. That's not how it happened. It, and we're just kind of kind of morphed into this thing we call the church. No, he is the source. He's the beginning. It wasn't the apostle's idea, it's, it's Jesus Himself, it's his creation. And it and it has its beginning in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what he means when he says that he is the firstborn from the dead verse 18. So Jesus' resurrection is the first of its kind. There had been other resurrections prior to Jesus, but His is supreme over all resurrections because He's the first to be raised with His glorified body, never to die again. And and that gives us resurrection hope in Him. And also, by virtue of His resurrection, He's exalted, seated at the Father's right hand, Philippians 2. And and so the result of Christ being the, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead is that in everything He might be preeminent he has unrivaled supremacy unrivaled supremacy he reigns totally over everything and because he is supreme he is also sufficient and I want to move quickly to that his sufficiency verse 19 and 20 so as God as as God who reigns over all things Jesus also has totally committed himself to us he has what Jesus what Jesus has done to accomplish our salvation and to be head of his body the church is enough it's enough Jesus didn't just go a little way he didn't just throw a few resources at this project he didn't just sort of pave the way so that we could come behind and do the rest no his person his work is enough it's all sufficient it's the only thing that could ever be enough Verse 19, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now that word fullness, I know it doesn't jump off the page like it would have for those Colossian believers that are first reading this letter but fullness, this was a word that the false teachers there loved to use. They talked about this. They talked about this fullness that believers could attain if, they would, if, they, if it would be Jesus plus these other rituals, Jesus plus these other teachings, Jesus plus these other rules. And Paul fires back and says, No! Christ is enough. He is enough. Christ is the fullness. You, you don't look to anywhere other than Christ for fullness. No, you look in Christ. You look to Christ for fullness. What deity, what supremacy, what sufficiency we have in Jesus? Now who, who are these people that get to enjoy this? They get to know this Jesus who is God, this Jesus who is all supreme, this Jesus who is all sufficient. It's got to be the good people, right? It's got to be the people who have their act together. It's got to be the people who haven't rejected God's loving rule in their life, that do the right things, that avoid the wrong things. No. I know we're jumping ahead, but verse 21, look how Paul addresses the church of Colossae. This church of Colossae, like the church of Baraka, it's made up of people who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. It's these people who he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death and he did that by verse 20 making peace by the blood of his cross he made peace that means there was not peace before reconciliation assumes that that a relationship has been broken it's been ruptured or dislocated and this is the human predicament sin has severed our relationship but it separated us from God and it also means, when it says he made peace, it means that you and I didn't make it. He made it by the blood of his cross. Anytime a relationship is, is broken, I mean really broken, somebody has to pay for it in order to repair it. We take a very simple illustration, something like theft. Let's just say, one of you steals $1,000 from me today. I don't have $1,000 on me. I would never have $1,000 on me. So don't, get any funny ideas or anything, but if I did have $1,000, and if you did, steal it from me, and if I wanted to be reconciled, if I wanted to to have peace in that relationship, one of us is going to be out $1,000. Right? You're going to have to pay me back, or I'm going to just have to accept the fact that I'm out $1,000. But something has been broken. Someone has to pay. There's a debt that has to be paid down. The problem is, in our relationship to God, the way we've sinned against Him, it's a debt we cannot afford. It is, we can't even get close. It's an infinite debt that we owe because of our sin. We can't pay it back without being eternally condemned. The wages of our sin is death, eternal death, separation from God. Why? Because the amount of debt depends upon the one to whom the offense is against. They're worth, just example, silly example again, if I spit in the toilet, nobody cares. That's what a toilet's for. It's for other things too, but it's not a big deal. If I spit in your face, whole other story. It's the same action, it's the it's same spit, but, but what's, what's the difference? The, a person is of greater value. It's greater dignity than a toilet. Well, the Lord is of infinite value. (laughs) So that when we spit in His face, as it were, which we all come out of the womb doing, we are alienated from God, hostile in our minds, engaged in evil deeds. We rack up this infinite debt because He's an infinite being. No one can pay an infinite debt down except for an infinite being. And there's only one of those So God the Father so loves us that He he sends His only Son to pay the debt of those who spit in His face. Jesus in whom all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's infinitely the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, over all things, lord of all, supreme over everything. And, and 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 he's willing to come. He totally committed himself to us. The Lord, the infinite image of God came to earth for the very people who racked up the dead against him. He came, took on flesh, the one through whom all things were created, entered into his creation and with the infinite value of his own life he went to the cross and he bore the infinite wrath of God that you and I deserved so that we could receive the infinite love of God that he alone deserved that's what's happened and because the fullness of God dwelled in him because he was an infinite being because he's the infinite image of God even the wrath of God didn't ultimately destroy him. Destroy him, And he rose and he's the firstborn of the dead. We have this hope in him. Let me just say to you, this is, if you're here, maybe you were suspicious of that statement and you're not sure who Jesus is. Maybe you were invited here. Maybe you're a guest. Maybe you're in here a long time and the lights are coming on. Have you been reconciled to God? Have you been reconciled to God? It's not those who are good that he makes peace with. It's those who have been alienated from him, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. We just have to admit that and look to him alone as our Savior and as our Lord. We rest our confidence on him alone. And we will find in him reconciliation. Him who made peace by the blood of his cross. If you haven't done that today i beg you today as paul says be reconciled to god in christ why because the debt has already been paid it's it's the payments already been made we don't have anything any work left to do in that department and for believers what a great encouragement to us his person his work it's enough it's sufficient it's it, it's sufficient because he is supreme and he's supreme because he's god that's the logic of paul's argument here and there's simply the receiving it of it looking to him resting in him upon him as your lord that's what we're called to do that's what it means when we say brothers and sisters as believers in jesus christ when we confess this together i believe in jesus christ his only son our lord that's what we're confessing it's not merely to appreciate jesus it's not merely to be aware of jesus or to simply acknowledge jesus it is to say what doubting thomas said to him my lord and my god trust in him that changes everything doesn't it I mean, how is that, that going to affect you as you walk through trials in your life? Physical ailments or, or relational difficulties, conflicts you're experiencing, uh, uncertainty about the future. Uh, what all those things. Jesus is Lord. He's holding all things together. He, he's supreme and He's enough. How is that going to affect your sense of mission? Of the, the, your, if you want a compelling a compelling motivation to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel or to walk across the street with the gospel it's not going to be the preacher up here pounding the pulpit breathing out threats and saying you've got to do this to, to earn God's favor it's this compelling vision of this glorious Lord Jesus Christ Jesus Christ is Lord so we go and we preach it that's, that's what's got to burden us this is what's got to fuel our worship as a church it's it's not, it's not the hype of the moment. It is this realization, this creedal statement that we're making that we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. May that be our glorious confession of faith together and may that be our great act of rebellion, brothers and sisters, together against the narratives that surround us in the world today. Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Lord, would you, Lord Jesus, would you help us to not just nod and affirm that uh, externally, but may that, the, may that profound truth just sink deeper and deeper and deeper into our lives, into our thoughts, into our hearts, into our affections, into our affect, so that it affects our wills. And so may it, even now, Lord, affect our voices as we sing to you, Jesus, God's only Son, would we, would we sing these words with great conviction in our hearts? And even if, if we're struggling, even if we're doubting, may this be a great opportunity for us to sing to one another in these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and sing across the aisle to one another where we can see brothers and sisters confessing this and, and believing that these words are true. And so uh, use this now to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.